Welcome to the Future of Australia podcast, where your host, Derek Stewart, interviews the entrepreneurs and founders running the 100 fastest growing new businesses in Australia. On episode 60, I speak with Amber Bonney, founder and head of strategy at the Edison Agency. We discuss how she knew exactly what she wanted to do when she was 14 years old and the challenge many designers and artists face commercialising their work. The lessons learned working in Melbourne, Adelaide and London, including roles managing internal communications for very large companies, as well as seeing the ups and downs of small businesses. How she started her own design consultancy that grew 38% last financial year to do over $2.6 million in annual revenue and become one of the fastest growing new businesses in Australia. Why she focuses on purpose and wants to become a B Corp in the future. If you're looking for a consultancy that helps people, brands and organisations create positive change through a team of passionate strategists, project managers and designers, check out edison.agency. That's E-D-I-S-O-N dot A-G-E-N-C-Y. So I'm here with Amber Bonney, the founder and head of strategy at the Edison Agency. Welcome to the podcast, Amber. Thanks, Derek. Great to be here. Excellent. So can you tell us what were you doing before you started the Edison Agency? What did you study? What type of roles or companies were you working in? Uh, I studied communication design at Swinburne University. I've really always worked in the same industry. I was one of those very lucky uh, children that grew up and uh, knew what I wanted to do and followed through with that pursuit. Um, I think I went to my first open day at 14 um, for the Bachelor of Communication Design and that's the course I did and I was pretty lucky like that. So I haven't really strayed out of the industry. I've, I have always worked for pretty small companies, sort of under 50 people. I've worked uh, mostly in Melbourne. I did a sh- couple of years in Adelaide, believe it or not, and I did nearly three years in London um, in my mid-20s, which was a fabulous experience. That's really London, New York are really sort of the heartland of uh, the design and brand industry. Um, yeah, so I've always really worked for smaller companies, I think mostly because I've always found that smaller companies have al- allowed me to sort of evolve into the role that I want. Um, which has always been, yeah, quite a privilege to be able to do that. And so not many 14-year-olds would even know what media or comms or anything like that is. What was going on when you were 10 or 12 years old that you even were aware of things like that? Were your family involved in it? Was uh, Did you have a teacher who kind of pointed you in that direction? Yeah, definitely family. So my dad has always been in the packaging industry, So and he was head of marketing for a big packaging company. And so he used to take me along to, you know, he was part of the Colour Society, which is a group of people that talk about theory and their love of colour. He used to take me along to that. Um, His company used to sponsor a lot of the courses in the university. So he would take me to the, you know, awards nights for universities. And that really just gave me exposure to, you know, an industry that I knew nothing about. And I thought it looked really great. I wasn't even really that sure that I had um, a lot of talent, to be honest, but I was certainly very driven. And um, yeah, that's kind of, that was the benchmark. And when I set myself a goal, I'm, I'm always, I just, you know, keep going till I achieve it. So 
And when you say packaging, do you mean like consumer packaged goods and sort consumer of fast-moving retail? Oh, yeah, excellent. FMCG, yeah. So uh, he was in that industry for a really long time and that really just gave me, I suppose, an insight into just the world of print, which, of course, for communication design um, up until more recently has always been the main sort of output for communication. So, yeah, I, th- I think that was the trigger or inspiration point. And so a lot of people, they study something at university, they have an idea when they're a teenager, once they actually start working, they realise it's quite different maybe than what they expected. Was there any part of it um, that was different, better or worse, um, than you were expecting from your teenage years and your early studies? Yeah, I think for me, um, certainly as I've evolved as a practitioner, I realised probably the business side of design um, is more complex than I was anticipating. Uh, you know, where in your university, a lot of what we learnt was very much about the practice of your own work and your own craft. But um, it's actually, you know, once you're in business and you're working for small businesses, you really start to see the the business side. But I've I've enjoyed all aspects of it, so I feel pretty lucky. So when you say the business side, is that the idea that you're going to be a creative, you're going to have all these ideas, colour, I want this budget or time frame, and, and is that the difference where the commercial reality hits the creative sort of reality? Yeah, it's it's the idea that you're working for somebody else, so it's not your work. The difference between commercial design and art is that commercial design are working, you're being paid by someone else to deliver a project for, for them. So really just considering, you know, who's the audience, how much are you charging, how much time do you have to do this project, um, they're all the considerations that are really important as part of that process. And that's what I found really interesting, actually, as opposed to, um, I suppose, the more artistic side of design. Did some of your peers find it discouraging? They thought they're going to be an artist, a creative, and then, like you said, the sort of the business, commercial, client requirements are different than your creative vision. But like you said, you sort of leaned into that, but did you find other people struggled with that a lot? Uh, definitely. I mean, creativity is one of those things that, you know, for some people it's a very personal experience and uh, a lot of those people moved into either their own practice, so as a sort of a sole trader, or um, they became sort of artists really where they were producing work and, and selling their own work. And for me, I always did really well while I was studying in those business subjects where you, you know, did start to understand who the consumer was and what you were producing for and some of the commercial realities around that. And I always found that really interesting. And then you mentioned you, um, you know, grew up in Melbourne. What, what prompted the move to Adelaide? Was that just an opportunity? Was it a lifestyle change? Yeah, it's a bit of a lifestyle change. My partner at the time, uh, we'd just finished uni. I had a bit of a high school sweetheart we were together for about seven years and uh, he got a job with the um, science and technology um, department over in South Australia and they said, we'll pay for you to move. So we moved over there and that was a really interesting experience, although quite difficult getting a job in Adelaide when you're from Melbourne. Um, that wasn't, it took a long time, a long time, but they have a really thriving creative community in Adelaide. So uh, that was a really enjoyable experience. And I'd always set my sights on London, like many um, young Australians did, and certainly in the creative industry. And so, yeah, mid-20s, I was on that plane. Um, unfortunately, it was just after uh, 9-11. That wasn't the best time to be looking for work internationally. Um, but it was a really 
eye-opening experience being over there and, and seeing the different depths of, of thinking and types of practice and the ways of working, which were much more sophisticated than they were in Australia at the time. And how did Adelaide compare? Like I said, now it's got a thriving sort of creative scene, but 20 plus years ago, uh, did you find work in a sort of marketing agency or were you more of a generalist or did you, again, just take a sort of job, but it wasn't really in the right sort of space you were hoping for? Yeah, I definitely did take a job because it took me a lot longer than I thought. Um, I took a job, I think I was working for ANSET actually in their freight department while <laughs> when ANSET still existed, that's how long ago it was. And, um, and then I finally did get a job in a boutique agency. Um, I think there was only three people in the end, they went bust, they couldn't afford to pay me. So I got another job, um, with a business that I stayed probably, yeah, a good couple of years at before I left to go overseas. And, um, it's just a smaller industry, so there's less head offices in um, Adelaide, so a lot of the work was more boutique, so smaller budgets, um, I suppose less chance for, for something mainstream or high impact. Of course, you know, the industry's changed a little bit, but we're talking, you know, I was 25, so you're talking, yeah, 2000, before 2000, mm. end of 1998, 99 and, and 2000. And you mentioned, so you dreamed of London, you know, the big city, very creative, um, marketing, media, advertising. What was the reality like once you got there? Was it better than you expected? Was it, you know, not as glamorous as you expected, just different in other ways, more competitive? Um, what was that um, initial uh, it, London experience like? Yeah, it's a good question. It As a lifestyle, London was everything I'd anticipated. It was just a lot more complex to find a job as an Australian um, than I was anticipating. I Obviously, if you're working in a bar, which is a bit of a, an Australian cliche, that was a bit easier. But for me, I was looking for a professional role. I was looking to elevate my experience. And it was really hard as an Australian to get that type of job that was paying well and that was going to be, you know, a great growth trajectory. And, of course, at that time, you know, there was no sort of Instagram pages or, you know, website portfolios. Everything was carried around on a on a disc and, and you know, you didn't really apply for jobs before you got there. You just had to arrive. So it did take me about 10 months. Um, it was a poor economic climate as well. So um, with the downturn after, after 9-11, that meant a lot of businesses, yeah, weren't in growth mode. But when I did finally settle, it was, yeah, a really great role. It opened me up to new opportunities um, in understanding the role of change communication. So the business I worked with really specialised in, in branding for um, internal organisations, so big corporate clients that, that really um, treated their internal brand as a separate stream of communication. So that was quite an eye-opener for me. I'd never even thought that, that that existed at that time. So did you have people who wanted to hire you and then visa issues got in the way or was it again that there's enough people locally with experience and contacts and they're at sort of the front of the line, you're new, no one knows you and it's just um, like you said, it was just hard getting a look in. It wasn't like a visa issue or anything like that. No, I mean, luckily my mum was born in England, so I I didn't have a visa issue. I, I could I can live and, and work around Europe for as, as long as I want. Actually, to be honest, it was the the profile of being an Australian tourist that um, killed me. Um, a lot of people felt like 
you know, at that time. And I'm not sure if it's changed, but, you know, Australians are just there for a good time and, you know, to get drunk and not turn up for work. So I had trouble um, people taking me seriously, really, that I was there as a professional. Yes, you know, being able to jump jump on a plane and get to Prague for the weekend was pretty exciting, but I was actually there, you know, to learn and develop professionally. And, and yeah, they thought like, you'd, it's just a holiday in six months, you'll be gone. No point investing yep. in you, training you, you're not a professional. So, and you're young and sort of. Exactly. Okay. And, and then what did you learn from that sort of internal communications? Because like you mentioned, a certain size company, you know, I have thousands or tens of thousands of internal stakeholders that need to be uh, communicated to just like customers was there a big sort of lesson or takeaway from your time doing that more internal facing comms yeah I think it was actually more around um the psychology of of people and and how important culture is to retaining good people and how clear communication ha- can have such a positive impact on um taking you know big organizations through change so for example, some of the projects we worked on were for big pharmaceutical companies and they might be moving head offices, for example, and you're talking about, you know, 600 people in the head office, move. they might be moving to a remote location. So you've just got, you know, the fear of change, the impact this is going to have on people, the, the communication of the process, um, how you're going to take people on that journey, how you're going to retain as many people as you can. Um, yeah, so I suppose the the cultural impact um, and the psychology around change in general and, and how that can have an impact on people's level of commitment or engagement on um, an initiative like that. Yeah, and I know now some big companies have internal um, podcasts, radio stations, intranets, portals, uh, you know, big sort of messaging channels. Back 20-plus years ago, what was the strategy? Was it a town hall people would get together? Was it a, a conference yeah. bridge people would dial into? How would you communicate to 600 people these big internal sort of change initiatives? Yeah, well, a lot of it was just old-school print, to be honest. Um, so obviously email, um, making videos and circulating that via email, um, a lot of sort of physical printed material, so you know, kits or bags or packs that would go out, you know, globally to people in multiple languages, Um, certainly town halls and presentations, you know, to try and engage everyone. But even that when you're talking globally um, was not always possible. So even just understanding the sensitivities of the impact of design in different cultures and the, the symbolism of, you know, what something means in Western world has a different interpretation and meaning in in other countries so you know we worked with you know people who um helped us with you know color for example in understanding the psychology of color in each of the markets that we had to communicate to to make sure that the intended message was the message that was going to be received so that level of sophistication was something that I had just not been exposed to previously was it also your first time, again, communicating across, you know, multiple countries and geographies? Had your previous Melbourne experience been sort of within Australia, like in terms of customers? All or? Local. Yeah, all local. And um, we had, I had experience in working with big Australian um, businesses at that time, but because I was so junior, I really didn't have a lot of visibility um, at that time. You know, I'm talking, you know, 24, you know, 23 straight out of uni. So, 
even though some of the projects we were working on when I first left uni were quite big, I didn't have any exposure. So this was really the first time that I, you know, been allowed into a boardroom, for example, or, you know, to take a brief and to see, you know, how complex the process can be and, and how we can use, you know, communication design to solve a problem, which was really exciting. And what about the, just the general work culture and attitudes in Melbourne versus London? Were there Was there a bit of culture shock? Things were different? Like I said, the scale, the size, obviously there's a lot of similarities in the two cultures and, and the two sort of countries. But were there other things that you noticed from your colleagues, from, you know, more external customer-facing um, comms that you did that was a bit of uh, something you didn't know or expect when you are working in Australia? Yeah, I mean, I definitely think uh, London you know, the, the industry in London was so much more complex. Everyone was much more connected and sort of in the know. I think coming from Melbourne and then, you know, soon after going to Adelaide, I felt like, you know, a little country mouse in a big city. So it, it did take me a while to sort of find my feet. And, you know, there was, you know, lots of, um, you know, lots of words and lots of people that pe- that were referenced that I had no idea who they were talking about. So I sort of always felt like I was the um, ignorant foreigner for a while until I sort of found my feet and and started to understand a bit of a bit more about the London scene and you know who who did what and how how they did that well and where are the places to go and you know who are the people to go and see talk. Um, you know, all of that sort of industry knowledge, I was pretty pretty green at that point. Yeah, and so, so you mentioned you worked in a, a lot of boutique, smaller sort of businesses. Um, you had, you know, one negative experience where they sort of, you saw what goes wrong in small business, um, you know, working sort of inside these larger businesses as well. What made you want to start Edison Agency? Was there a particular event once you came back to Australia? Was it something in a different company where you said, I'm going to start my own or I can do it better? Or what sort of prompted you to, to start your own company? Well, I'd I'd been when I got back to Australia. Um, I had my first child um, in my late twenties. So at, at that time, when I was doing a bit of freelance work, and then I got a my first sort of permanent job back in Melbourne with a business that was a boutique strategy agency, and I stayed there for seven and a half years. And in that time, I was given an opportunity to, to pivot really my role from being a, a practicing designer into um, account service, which when I look back was actually a significant show of faith for my employer at the time because I had absolutely no experience in customer service or account service. I'd never used Excel or Word Um but I did know the client and I did know the process and that was really, they said, look, we can teach you all that stuff, but it's actually the creative process and the products that we're selling, which, you know, were large scale projects that, you know, went on for, you know, a year. Um, that's actually the expertise we need. So I pivoted from a senior designer role to an account director role where I was in charge of two of our biggest clients. And then from that role, I evolved into a general manager role, which really gave me exposure across all business units. I worked with the head of finance and the CFO and um, and the CEO. And that was probably, I stayed there for nearly eight years. And when I decided to leave, I wanted to have a bit of a break. So I took a six-month sabbatical, if you like, took my son overseas and um, just wanted a bit of a rest, to be honest. Um, we, You know, I left on really good terms, but I was looking for that sort of next next step. 
And I didn't really know where I wanted to work. Nowhere was really sort of jumping out. Um, And so I thought I'll just, I don't know, I'm just going to see what happens, which actually is not innate to my nature, (laughs) just to see what happens. And um, I got a call about four or five months into my um, committed six-month sabbatical from a, a colleague I used to work with in Sydney, they said, look, I've heard you've left, you know, what are you doing? Are you joining another company? Are you doing your own thing? I said, look, I have no idea at this point. And he's like, well, I've got this project I want you to work on. Um, was in the fast-moving consumer goods area. Would you be interested in putting a proposal in? So I submitted a proposal, quickly jumped online and registered an ABM as a sole trader, and, um, and I got the job. And really that was you know, as cliche as it was at the kitchen table, um, that's how I started. And I think, you know, to answer your question, the trigger was I had the experience in the last role across all facets of the business. So understanding how to quote a job, understanding um, how to track jobs and run reports and um, put a proposal in and and all of those sort of more complex um challenges to to running a business and so I had the confidence really to say well I can actually still jump on the tools and design so if I need to I can pretty much wear every hat I need to and that's pretty much what I did. And and were you a natural once you so to speak once you became more in a client-facing role again you'd been sort of behind the scenes on the tools designing and then the boss sort of picked you and put you in a client-facing role. Did that commercial aspect from, you know, your, your earlier experience, did that sort of come naturally or was it a really big culture shock to to swap from being a designer to being an account manager? Uh, no, I, I had been pretty visible with the clients in the presentation. So I, I'm assuming that that's where their confidence came from is that I was always very interested in um, being at the forefront of you know, helping clients understand, you know, where the ideas are coming from, how that links to helping them solve problems. And so I I think it was a pretty natural evolution for me. Yeah, and so you've got your ABN, you've got your first client. Um, (laughs) What was that first 12 months like? Were you thinking, oh, I'll just freelance, have better work-life balance, or do you think I really want to build my own agency? And was that vision there from sort of the start? No, it wasn't really. Um, I... I knew, uh, I did think that I wanted to start a business. My very first um, employer was a woman and and she said to me a, a piece of advice that's actually always stuck with me. She said, learn what you can from other people first, fill up your toolkit with as many tools as you can and then go out and, you know, conquer in your own way. And while, you know, that for some people, they like to just, you know, some people leave school and then that's all they do. Um, I really wanted to learn as much as I could from other people and see different ways of thinking and working before I did that for myself. So I knew, you know, at this point I was, you know, mid-30s maybe or early 30s and um, and I, yeah, sort of knew that, that that was the right time to do that. So um, I felt pretty comfortable. I, I didn't want to grow too fast and I remember thinking to myself, you know, if I just get a couple of freelancers, I can manage the work on my own, which is what I did really for the first kind of 18 months. And to be honest, those first kind of 12 months were actually quite easy because I was pretty much doing what I was doing in the other business for myself and, and using the same sort of tools and, and systems that I'd set up. It started to get more complex, obviously, as, as the business grew. And then I shifted from a sole trader to a 
um, proprietary limited and, you know, then there's a whole lot of taxation challenges that come with that. Yeah, and, and so you've set up, like you said, you're, you're steadily building, um, but you have seen sort of quite rapid growth, growing 38% last financial year, doing over $2.5 million in annual revenue, becoming one of the, the fastest growing new businesses in Australia. Was there anything different that you did that sort of um, produced that sort of rapid ongoing growth? And did anything change you know, for the better or worse as you sort of grew and, and really sort of scaled up? Yeah, well, the scale-up process involved um, closing down the first business and starting a new one. So the business that I first started was actually called Bonnie Creative. Um, that's because I <laughs> literally just had to use my name and 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 strategically use the profile that I had in the industry um, to be able to leverage that with, with new clients. I, I did probably three years in that business before I realised um, I didn't I didn't want to be pigeonholed into the industry that I was working in, which at that time was purely FMCG. And so I um, I met a woman through a mutual friend who's now a shareholder in the business and our CFO, and we talked about what the long-term strategy was for, for me in business, and that's really where Edison was born. Um, we wanted to have a more um, diverse portfolio of clients and products and at that time we were working purely in in basically packaging design and that wasn't really where a my expertise was and where I wanted to stay so we did pivot quite substantially and I'd say where the rapid growth came from was probably us sticking to our guns um having a solid plan and and working really hard at achieving that plan and we didn't really deviate from what we set out to achieve, it, you know, it took, you know, sort of a few years um, to do that and a few hurdles along the way. But, you know, we were very clear about the type of work we wanted to do. Um, and for us, that was about, you know, the, the the income coming from large blue chip clients, but then that giving us the freedom to do work that was smaller and more independent or pro bono that we were really interested in, but we needed the, the revenue from the last the large clients to enable us to do that. And, and so were there some slightly different services or offerings that you did? Like you said, you're sort of staying with what you're focused with, but also wanting to diversify a bit. What were some of those new things that you sort of added in over time? Yeah, well, the new things was um, for when we were working in packaging design, it was always around um, brands, so creating brands, developing strategy for brands. Um, whether that's repositioning a brand or it's a new brand altogether. So brand was always at the heart. Um, but with the reason we wanted to diversify out of just packaging was because it, it really just segments us into FMCG. Whereas, you know, I had an experience with corporate brands and um, in startups and in other, you know, other industries like property development. And um, so diversifying the product into sort of packaging is one segment, but then there's strategy, then there's communications, uh, digital, and um, and then brand identity as its own product offer allowed us to, um, to reach new markets, really, and um, for me to be able to leverage some of that previous experience to, um, to add a few more feathers to the bow, so to speak. And was it hard, like in the same way an actor gets typecast, you know, business or yourself can get sort of typecast, all your network and a lot of your backgrounds in that sort of FMCG? I mean, were, were clients receptive when they saw your capabilities or was it quite hard to, to break into those sort of new offerings and services that are related to what you were doing but slightly sort of adjacent and different? 
way harder than I thought. If I'm being frank, um, we were definitely typecast and, and we're still on that journey, to be honest. Um, the business is still evolving. We still have pretty aggressive um, diversification goals in terms of pivoting. Um, we still have a large FMCG portfolio, but we're definitely making really positive traction in, in some other industry areas. So it was harder than I thought Um with a lot of the big clients we work with, they have very specific um, rostered relationships. So you get pigeonholed into you're the brand people or you're the pack people and you're the below-the-line people and you're the advertising people, you're the media people, you're the PR people, and there's not a lot of cross-pollination. So that made it quite difficult. It's really with our um, smaller, more independent clients that have allowed us to be able to grow our case study and portfolio in in what we call kind of through the line. So going all the way from brand creation through to to comms or digital. Um, And we're still on that journey now. But it was a lot harder than I anticipated. And you mentioned when you started, it was just you and then you had a freelancer here or there. So it's fairly straightforward to manage. How are some of those management challenges as you grew and, you know, massively sort of expanded to beyond where you started on the people side? Was it hard getting the right people on board? Was it hard managing more people, more complexity where you're not sort of across everything personally? Yeah, um, really tough. And look, the business, um, across the two businesses over the past 11 years, um, we've sort of expanded and then contracted twice, I think. Um, Once was when I had my second child and I think the business was too much in, in its infancy to have me not so heavily connected in the business. And you know, we lost a significant amount of money that year. And I think in hindsight, if I had gone back, I should have downsized the team to allow for a, you know, a downturn in revenue. But I, you know, wanted to keep everyone going and I had a really committed team. You know, there was only sort of six of us, but it's still a lot of mouths to feed when the revenue drops significantly. So that was a a solid lesson learnt. Um, Thankfully, we haven't had too many other years like that and we'd had, you know, a good first three years that allowed us to, you know, not, we still had cash in the bank, basically. Uh, but I think now finding the right people, so we've got 18 people now, um, finding the right people with the right cultural fit um, is is really the key to what's driving the success of the business now. Um, where, you know, we're hitting that point where we've got, you know, one person coming up to their, well, one person sitting at the fifth anniversary and a couple of people sitting at, uh, four years and then, you know, more people sitting at three years and then two years. So, um, you know, engaging people and reducing sort of turnover of staff has been really important. And have you had a, uh, a strategy or something specific you did in terms of sort of attracting staff? Um, like in a way you set up the roles, the business, the clients is maybe unique or different compared to how most sort of comms and media companies do it? Yeah, I mean, we're very... Um, I suppose we're a purpose-led business, so and we've certainly gotten better at that. I, I I can't say from the outset that we were doing it amazingly. We were just doing what we could uh, based on what we knew. And of course, at the beginning, um, that was really just me. And then as the team's grown, you know, we've got a really strong um, leadership team. My husband joined the business as general manager um, two years ago. That's been um, made a significant difference to the business because he's got a really senior operations background. So he's brought, you know, 
more expertise um, to the business than we ever had. Um, and he also heads up HR. So that's been helpful. Um, I think the people side of the business has been probably the most difficult thing uh, um, to manage, both just um, finding the right balance between having humility and empathy and then, you know, potentially being too slow to make decisions around when people just need to be let go and when it is just business. Um, I think, you know, as I said, I'm, I made a decision too late, which, you know, cost us, you know, about three quarters of a million dollars, you know, <laughs> for 18 months in um, in downturn. So, yeah, I think having the right people and the right leadership team has probably been the significant difference in in since, you know, starting to grow. So you mentioned sort of, yeah, getting the right people, the right management structure in place was, was a real sort of challenge. Um, was there something you changed? You mentioned sort of being more purpose-focused. Was that something that was just a, a personal value to, to be more purpose-driven or was that when you realised, um, you know, just that was important to people you were hiring or your clients or both? Uh, I think innately that came from the type of people that we'd employed and the types of things that we cared about innately. but you know, as I, you know, I'm approaching 50 and uh, I think you just hit that point in your 40s where, you know, you start to think, what am I actually here for? And, you know, coming into the industry nearly 25 years, it's a long time to be doing that sort of work. I, you know, just started to really self-reflect on what type of work did I want to do um, and how could we across every project have more impact and whether that impact was with internally, so the way that we treated our staff, the opportunities we gave them for their own careers, the um, the mentoring that we did with industry, um, and then the type of projects we worked on. You know, we've certainly always been pretty discerning about the type of clients we will or won't work with in terms of industries and categories. And so I suppose just being a bit more purpose-driven, to be honest, really, it was probably COVID. That downtime in COVID was the opportunity to really do that self-reflection um, and and start to put probably just a bit more structure around it. It was always innately there in the way that we operated. We've always um, believed in, you know, treating people well and fairly and paying people on time and just all those, you know, simple, decent human being things to do. Um, but, you know, it's amazing in business how many people don't do that. You know, they just treat people like a number. They don't, you know, pay people on time. And I've been on the receiving end of, you know, many an unpaid invoice or just a poor communication or a lack of respect. Um, so that was always pretty innate in the business, but uh, we've really been probably a bit more focused on the last few years with the senior leadership team in putting some frameworks and um, some goals together and some measurable targets that can actually start to help evolve the business into its next phase. Yeah, and you mentioned before the recording you were considering uh, turning your company into a B Corp. Um, mm-hmm. Do you want to just sort of talk through what that would mean if, if people aren't sort of familiar with it and then what the uh, thought process is behind that? Yeah, so a B Corp certification is really it's a global acknowledgement of a business balancing um, people, planet and profit really. So for us, um, what that would mean is that formal acknowledgement of all of our commitments, both to each other and to our clients and to, you know, society and 
and the planet in general in um, in having a positive impact and in making sure that you know we're we're not just in it um, to make money with no regard really for um, the treatment of people or treatment of the planet. So it's um, it's something that we evolved our purpose, which now is really focused on using transformative design to create positive change for people, brands, and organisations. And, and we see that as being both in the work that we do internally and in the way that we treat um, our customers and our partners and the community, um, and then the type of projects that we do and the impact that we can have with them. And are there any particular, you know, projects that you really sort of illustrate that, some of that sort of those values, those purpose-driven things that you're really focused on? Yeah, well, I think probably the first thing would be the pro- the, the clients we don't work with. We have, you know, specific industries um, that, you know, I have a, a personal um, commitment to not work with. So certainly the gambling industry is one of those, the tobacco industry, Um you know, there's there's certain industries that we believe are just not aligned to our ethics at all. I think the projects we do work on. I mean, we do have we do work in FMCG. There is there are packaged goods that we that we work with, but working with some of our big corporate clients has actually made me realise that you can actually have greater impact working with greater uh, with big clients because they have you know thousands of employees. So. If we can, if we can help make small micro changes in big organisations, it means the sort of the flow-on effect from that is actually quite big. Um, it also enables us to do work, um, you know, what we call head and heart projects. So, pro bono projects, for example, um, we've got a commitment to, you know, sort of donating three percent of our revenue to either pro bono projects or or cash or or goods in kind. So our time. And last year we managed um, 3.5%, which we were really proud of. And it's those projects, so working, you know, on causes um, like, you know, domestic violence, so helping communicate, um, you know, initiatives that that support women who might be fleeing from violence. It might be about, um, you know, causes linked to sustainability or education and development. Um, so working on those big clients has enabled us to take on also smaller projects Um that, you know, help us live that purpose day in, day out, really. And do you feel it's created a better alignment with um, within your clients? Like they see what you're doing, they're looking at how they can communicate sort of purpose or a, I know some of them have sort of ESG and reporting requirements um, and things like that. But, I mean, do they sort of come on the journey and see it or a lot of them still not quite there yet and they're still trying to figure it out and you're sort of in some ways leading the way and sort of showing them, you know, what's possible and, and different ways of thinking? Yeah, I think everyone's at a different journey. So um, even with our big corporate clients, some corporate clients, <clears throat> you know, are all over this and have been for years and, you know, they've they've pivoted away from thinking about things as a corporate social responsibility and, and you know, that mandatory reporting into just an ethical way of living. Um, so they're really inspiring and, you know, it helps us, you know, we learn from each other. Other clients um, have sort of allowed or been open to us you know, I suppose planting the seeds for change and, and, you know, it's just a, it's a daily journey that we go on. We're evolving and getting better and we're making different decisions every day that um, have an impact on the way that we operate from, you know, the the way we recycle in the office to the, the banks we use and how ethical those banks are and all of our service providers. The, you know, we recently overhauled all of our um, cleaning products, for example, and in making sure that 
we're sort of making good choices everywhere that we can. And that's what we're trying to do with clients as well. So um, just, you know, chipping away every little opportunity to have a more positive impact. And so some of those things, I think, are important things that people sort of overlook, you know, like you have a business bank, you have a, you know, office cleaning product, you're busy with your clients and hiring. Where would you sort of say someone who's interested but doesn't know where to start? I mean, is it obviously how you treat your people is sort of where it starts? Or is it, like you said, looking at your supply chain? Do you start with looking at your customers? Like you said, that who you would work with, who you wouldn't work with? There's so many different areas. Where would you sort of advise someone to begin? Maybe if they're a sort of a smaller business and not a large sort of corporate. Yeah, I, I think it actually just begins from within. So, you know, as a team, whether that's one person or 10 people or five people, it's what are the things that are important to you? Um, you know, these are, you know, thinking about your own brand from a strategic perspective. What do you value? Um, what sits at the heart of your business? Um what sort of story do you want to tell to other people? And then what are the things that you value? And then when you sort of work through that, um, it then helps to define, well, what's important to you and where can you make kind of micro changes? Um, we've started using the um, United Nations um, Sustainable Development Goals as our sort of benchmark. So we've gone through, you know, all 17 of those goals and we've picked out five that we think we can have a, an impact that um, that we believe in because obviously you can't you can't do everything. And, um, and we've aligned those to our, um, what we call our design for good pillars really, um, and that's and we've just engaged the board of business. So I think starting with something like that, so starting with the you know UN sustainability goals, but also about just looking inwards and you know just creating a couple of page PowerPoint on who are we, what do we value, why do we exist, um, and how can we have impact. Um, we had a um, we went through this process again. We evolve all the time. So every couple of years we re-look at how we talk and how we look and um, redefine what that might mean. And we got to sort of a list of six, six things that I'll read to you. Um, we create together. We tackle big problems. We work with heart. We dream big. We move quick. We have a no asshole policy. Uh, we work for love and money and we believe in substance and style. And, and they're really the things that sort of underpin our offer, the way that we work and um, sort of clients that we want to work with. Mm. And so if we zoom out a, a little bit and you've worked in, in the UK, you've worked in Australia with, uh, you know, multinational and big clients, what do you see sort of um, Australian entrepreneurs doing really well? And then where do you see um, Australian entrepreneurs, um, you know, leaving more room on the table for potential growth? Yeah, it's interesting. I feel like um, in the last five years, the word entrepreneur just gets bandied around with no sense of responsibility, like everyone's an entrepreneur at the moment. Um, I think that the benefits of what underpins entrepreneurship are, you know, this sense of kind of freedom and, and doing the type of work that you want. Um, the risk of that is that um, there's a sort of a lack of long-term commitment to what does that actually mean to to run a business and and running a business especially where you employ people I think that's the biggest shift is a significant commitment and I think um going into that with eyes wide open in terms of the responsibility you have to that other person whether it's one person or five people um is really big and I and I see sort of people sometimes when I'm at you know business events and things like that sort of seems like that's not a 
it's not something that's really taken that seriously um, in terms of commitment to other people and industry and nurturing the industry and and growing um, and working in an ethical way. So I I think um, that's an opportunity for for small businesses to do more of. Um, I mean, I'd love Australian businesses to be, I suppose, a bit more responsible in the way that they're operating and for every small business to be, I suppose, you know, governed and mandated by what sort of impact are they making um, so that everything they're doing is is having a positive impact. And that doesn't matter whether you're, you know, a lawn mowing business to, you know, to a, you know, day trading group or, you know, a tech startup, everyone can make um, a positive impact and thinking about, you know, how you can do that and and how the, um, I suppose, every decision that you make has an impact on someone else. So, you know, even as simple as, you know, not paying your bills or um, cancelling, you know, something at the last minute has an impact on someone else. So being ethical in the way that we operate is really important. And when you talk about sort of staff and responsibility, do you mean that some people, you know, like um, don't, they sort of rush into hiring people before they're ready or, or do you mean some people, like, so they start a business to have freedom and then they realise, you know, once you've got 10 people on the payroll, you actually have a lot less, less freedom than being an employee where you don't have to worry about 10 other people's salaries um, and ongoing, let's say, professional development purpose, things like that. Or, um, yeah, what are some of those sort of specific trends you're sort of seeing a lot of people um, struggle with in their first few hires? Yeah, I think... Um having the tools and experience or or reaching out to the right people and putting the right infrastructure in place to make sure that they are um, employing people ethically and, um, you know, if they do need to let them go, sometimes that happens that they're doing that in a responsible way as well. Um, You know, I've seen and heard of some pretty horrific (laughs) treatment of people in in that respect and, and business owners just you know, not having access to the right information around how to do that, that can be really difficult. Um, I think there's always a a bit of a, I suppose, a misconception that hiring lots of people means that you're growing and you're doing um, a great job, especially in a service-based industry. Like, you know, 75% of our um, operating costs are people. Mm. So if we don't take care of our um, asset, then it can be, yeah, a real challenge. Yeah, and so if you look back to maybe your um, 18 to 20-year-old self or someone who's 18 to 20-year-old right now and at that pivotal life point, finishing high school, thinking about what's next, um, maybe finishing university, what what advice would you sort of give them looking back on your own life now? Mm, That's a good question. Um, I mean, I would definitely say to my younger self, maybe just to enjoy the journey a little bit more. my nature is always forward focused. I'm always on the, you know, the next kind of hunt for for something new. I get bored quite easily. So I'm always reinventing myself. Um, sometimes the downside of that um, when you get to my age is, you know, the sometimes the enjoyment's not there or the um, just the self-reflection of how you've actually done well. Just enjoy that. Congratulate yourself. Be kind to yourself. Um you know, that's probably something I'd like to tell my younger self. And maybe just, you know, knowing your worth and not really compromising. I, I definitely made some compromises along the way um, just based on, you know, either, you know, getting stuck in a 
patriarchal environment and sort of feeling like I didn't have didn't have a voice, uh, which now I look back and <laughs> think, why didn't I sort of speak up? Um, so sticking to your guns and I suppose, yeah, knowing your worth would be something I would have tell my younger self. So, so was that situations where like you had an opinion but you didn't speak up or you didn't put your hand up for a promotion or there was something like I said maybe ethically you didn't agree with it, but you didn't sort of push as hard or any, anything in particular where you sort of felt that you didn't sort of um, do what you were hoping to do? Yeah, I mean, all of those things. I think I've, I've been in situations um, where I've either been undervalued or, you know, in some way exploited without, you know, really having the confidence to kind of call it, even though intuition was sort of saying, you know, this doesn't feel right. I've worked for clients or projects that felt uncomfortable at the time that, you know, when I now running my own business, I can make those decisions, no problem. But at that time, I was sort of like, oh, I don't really want to work on this tobacco job. But, you know, I've been brought in on the team and, you know, I should have put my hand up and then you're sort of stuck. So I suppose just having that kind of inner confidence to say, look, I'm not comfortable with that um, would have been helpful back then. Mm. And so going back to your business, Edison Agency, what does a medium term five or 10 year vision look like? We've mentioned the B Corp, the the values. Um, Are there any other things that, you know, you really want to sort of achieve or a direction you're aiming at? Yeah, I mean, growing um, the port, diversifying the portfolio of um, categories, I suppose, um, being able to work more with businesses that are measuring their social impact would be really great. That's a that's a goal for us. Um, you know, continuing to grow the type of work that we're doing so that we have, you know, greater involvement across projects um, is definitely a goal, continuing you know, to grow our partnerships. I mean, we we definitely work better when we're in long-term partnerships. So um, continuing to find new ways to evolve together, I think is really important to us. And, you know, enjoying enjoying the work probably is, is the other goal. And, um, I mean, would you be looking to expand overseas at a certain point, um, have more of a national presence, or, again, is it really just focusing on the right work the right mix of clients the right mix of services but not necessarily you know scaling out the geographic footprint as much yeah I mean we've you know we operate in Sydney um we've been trying to get Brisbane off the ground for a while but um it is a bit challenging at the moment so we've sort of just taken stock and and recalibrated Melbourne Sydney I've always had a goal to live in New York um much like many people seems a bit cliche but um I would definitely like to do work overseas and use that opportunity to to expand um, into a global market. Um, we want to publish a couple of books, um, you know, start a podcast. Um, you know, that sort of work I think is really interesting. I've I've been trying for the last couple of years to um, start. I, I'd like to do my PhD, so that's on the goal for me, um, and and use that. Um, as the precipice for, you know, books and a podcast potentially. So, and, you know, and continue to grow the team so that really there's less, um, I can I can be in less really, which we're getting to that point. We've got a great leadership team and great group of, of people. So they're less reliant on me now, which is um, really excellent. Things happen and I'm not involved in, which is very exciting. Absolutely. And any final thoughts or words you'd like to leave the audience with? 
Oh, I mean, I'd say just, yeah, keep doing your best work and keep thinking about what impact that work has. Um, get involved in the in whatever industry you're in. I think, you know, a lot of our successes come from also just our connection to community. And so getting involved in community, making sure that you're giving back to that community and nurturing that next generation. Um, don't be afraid to ask for help. That's always, I still ask for help all the time, always learning, always growing. Perfect. Thanks so much, Amber. You're welcome. Thanks, Derek. Thank you for listening to the Future of Australia podcast. If you liked the episode, please subscribe and leave a review in iTunes. To learn more about the Future of Australia project, check out futureofaustralia.com. To reach out to Derek directly, you can email derek at futureofaustralia.com. That's D-E-R-E-K at futureofaustralia.com.